This is episode 84 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tanmore Events Podcast. This episode goes back to the 2013 Annual Enrichment Conference with Michael Lawrence. This is session one from Monday night titled, Why You Should Be a Biblical Theologian. Great to be here with you all this evening. My name is Michael Lawrence. I am uh, just for two and a half years, only since 2010, uh, the, the senior pastor at, at Henson Baptist Church. It seems like forever. It does. Why is this so big? This is my Bible. Can you all see this? Why is this so big? Now I can tell you why this one's so big. This one is so big because I'm now 46 years old and I have to have the large print version if I'm going to be able to read it. I used to have a really cool small one like the guys over there had. Uh, put it in my hip pocket when I was student student ministry. That was excellent. But not why is it so large, but why is the Bible so long? Why is it so long? Doesn't it seem like it's longer than it needs to be? If the point of Christianity is our salvation, well, wouldn't the New Testament suffice? For that matter, how about just the Gospels? How about just one Gospel? When, when you really get down to it, if the point of Christianity is the salvation of human beings, then why do we need anything more than John 3.16? I am the product of that sort of thinking. I didn't grow up around here. I grew up in the Deep South. And I grew up in church. I grew up in Baptist churches, just like a lot of yours. And I heard the gospel there. And I trusted in Christ for salvation. It sure seemed like a better deal than the other offer, you know, which was hell, right? But even as a kid, accepting this great offer that was held out to me, I, I found myself wondering, what, what really is the point of all the rest? of the Bible. Seems to be the point of all the rest of the Bible is be good. So here's Jesus, take it to heaven, now be good. That was the Christianity I grew up with. The rest of the Bible, as I read it, as it was taught to me, it, 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 was a, it was a bit like watching TV. You know, what do you see on TV? You see stuff that happens to other people. Interesting, sometimes. Entertaining, sometimes. But largely irrelevant to my life. By the time I was in high school, the be good message was getting old and less and less compelling, especially as I held it up next to girls. <laughs> By the time I was in college, I was ready to throw the whole thing overboard. What pulled me back from abandoning the Christianity of, of my youth, of, of my childhood? Well, it wasn't guilt. It was, in fact, the Holy Spirit confronting me with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. With, with the Jesus Christ that required the entire Bible to understand. Through the scriptures, beginning with the Gospels, but, but then moving on into, into the rest of the Bible, there, there were some friends in college that showed me that Christ was relevant to all of my life, not just fire insurance, right? He, he, he wasn't a Christ who had taken care of my past and secured my future, that would be good. No, he was a Jesus that was, that was relevant to all of my life. 
that all of life, and not just salvation from hell, found its meaning in and through Jesus. And, and what, that, what that did for me was, was it changed my understanding of salvation, right? Salvation all of a sudden meant far more than escaping hell. It meant being brought into a relationship, a, a, a relationship with, with the God of the universe. And, and that changes everything, right? That, that doesn't just change my morals. That, that changes the way I understand the world. It changes the way I understand all the relationships around me. It, it changes the way I think about my purpose and place in life. It changes the way I think about history. It changes the way I think about politics. It changes the way I think about my family and my other relationships. In other words, salvation meant an entirely new and utterly comprehensive change in my worldview. But Mark was just talking about it. The way I made sense of everything. And for that, I needed a Bible that was bigger than John 3.16. For that, I needed a Jesus that was bigger than John 3.16. We need the whole Bible if we're to understand the salvation that God has wrought for us in Jesus Christ. So what I hope to do, just by way of introduction, and what I hope to do in, in the sessions that I have with you, which won't be every single one, but some of them, is, is to think about what we call biblical theology. Just let me give you a quick roadmap of, of where we're going. To, tonight, I want to make a case for it, of, of why we should read the Bible as one story, not a bunch of stories one story. T tomorrow night, which will probably be the, the most difficult night, that, it's going to be the roughest sledding, it's going to feel the most like a lecture. Um, well, I say that, but you may feel like tonight feels like a lecture, we'll see. Uh, but I guarantee you tomorrow. Tomorrow will be a little tougher. We're going to talk about some of the tools of biblical theology. How do we do this? How do we read the Bible in such a way that it puts all of the Bible together as one story, one worldview? And in particular, we're going to talk about covenants, which is something we like to talk about here in the CB Northwest. And then on Wednesday, we're just, we're just going to do the work of biblical theology. I'm going to, a couple of different times, tell the whole story of the whole Bible and then help us think about the difference that makes in the way we live out our lives as Christians and the way we go about our work as church planters and as mentors and disciples of the next generation. That, that's the roadmap. What we're talking about is biblical theology. What do I mean by the term? Well, sometimes when we talk about biblical theology, we simply mean theology that's biblical. You know, theology that's, that's faithful, that's, that's sound, that, that says what the text says, biblical rather than unbiblical. I'm going to assume you agree that we should all have that kind of theology. What I want to talk about is a biblical theology that understands every single individual text we read or teach or preach in light of the context of the whole, the canonical context. A theology that therefore understands that there is an interpretive key to every text, and that key is Jesus Christ. Now when I say that biblical theology is canonical theology, I don't mean exactly what the academics mean. So some of you are academics and, and you're all worried that I'm a liberal don't mean what they mean. What I mean is that while we recognize that there are 66 different books and a bunch of different authors, each telling their own set of stories, giving their own set of instructions in their own voice, 
we also recognize as Christians that the Bible is one book with one author, that's God, telling one story from beginning to end. Here's how Peter put it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That one story, inspired by that one spirit, tells us not only how to live a life that pleases God, but it, but it tells us a story that, that completely redefines us. And it redefines the world that we live in. So when I talk about biblical theology this week, really what I'm talking about is a reading strategy. A, a, a hermeneutical approach to scripture, to use bigger words. But really just a reading strategy. How to read the Bible as a single book with a single plot. God's glory displayed through Jesus Christ. That's the plot. God's glory displayed through Jesus Christ. It's about seeing the unity of the Bible in the midst of all the diversity. It's about understanding the Bible is giving us a meta-narrative. That's a big fancy word that academics use to mean a story that makes sense of all the other stories. A, a, an overarching story, a, a framework of meaning that challenges every other alternative framework of meaning that's out there. It's about recognizing that the Bible is not just a story that I read, it's a story that reads me. Since it begins at the beginning of time, in Genesis 1, and since it ends right at the end of time, right as we cross over into eternity in Revelation 22, that has a really profound implication for the way we read this Bible. It means that this is an incredibly contemporary book. The Bible is not an ancient story about an ancient time. The Bible is a story that contains our time. Our time is inside the timeline of the Bible story. Well, when we get our heads around that, we begin to realize this is an incredibly contemporary and relevant book. It's going to change the way I think about who I am and how I live in the present. Just, just give you one quick example. One of the main stories you know, that, that our world gives us to help us define ourselves, understand who we are, where we're going, what we're doing, is what we've come to call the American dream. The American dream is a story. It's, it's a meta-narrative. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It, it, it has, a, a, especially what's important is it has a telos, it has an end, it has a goal. And we define ourselves by reaching that goal, traveling along a path that gets us there. And what is the American dream? You know, well, we'll define it different ways. For some of us, it's gonna be homeownership. And for some of us, it's gonna be, I'm retiring at 30. And for others, it's gonna be, you know, a, a, the, 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 the family and the white picket fence. Or, but for some people, it'll be something very, very different. But the American dream is all about having the freedom to pursue that goal and find your meaning in that goal. It's a dominant narrative of our culture. We don't have to think about it consciously for it to begin to define us. It's just the air we breathe. Then we come to the, the Bible story. And, and, and how, does, how does Peter describe us as he opens up 1 Peter 
he describes us as elect exiles. What are exiles? Exiles are definitely people who don't own property. <laughs> They're not setting down roots. That, that, even in that little phrase right there, we're, we're given an identity, actually more than identity, a storyline, because exiles came from somewhere and they're going somewhere, immediately begins to challenge the way we reflexively think about our lives as Americans. This is what the Bible story does. Biblical theology, though, isn't just the whole story of the whole Bible. It is, as I said a moment ago, a story with a key, a, a hermeneutical principle that explains the ultimate meaning and significance of every single text. Now, you know in real estate, what are, what are the three most important things in selling a house? Location, location, location. And you know, I'm sure, that the same is true for the Bible. What's the most important thing for understanding any text in the Bible? Context, context, context. That's just a different word for location, right? Context is king. Now, a lot of us are pretty good at paying attention to the immediate context of any passage we're looking at. We, we even read maybe our passage in light of the book as a whole that we're in. But if the ultimate context is the one book, if the ultimate context is the canon, and if the canon is the story of God's glory revealed through Jesus Christ, then biblical theology is going to be unashamedly Christ-centered. Christ-centered. It is Jesus Christ who reveals God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, those verses mean something for the way we read our Bibles. It is not that God used to reveal himself through the prophets and the scriptures they wrote, but now he's traded up to a better revelation vehicle, the Son the way we trade up our phones or our cars. It's not what those verses are saying. What those verses say is that since Jesus is the revelation of God, not just a new and improved revelation of God, but the revelation of God, that means every other way he ever spoke to us, the prophets, Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, they must, in fact, be revealing Jesus to us. Otherwise, they do not reveal God to us at all. Because Jesus is the revelation. Now, now Mark, I'm not neglecting the Trinity here. All right? The centrality of Jesus doesn't mean we neglect the Trinity because Jesus brings us to the Father. And Jesus sends the Spirit, but Mark notes which I know you know, because I like the way it was illustrated in the video. We don't have a relationship with the other persons of the Trinity, except from Jesus Christ. Never apart from him, always through him. Now, I don't know of many evangelicals, I'm sure there's not a single person in this room 
they would disagree that our theology should be Christ-centered. But I'm actually saying more than that. I'm saying that according to the scriptures, the way we read scripture should be Christ-centered. So it's, it's not just that Jesus is the most important thing that the Bible reveals. It is, this is what I'm saying, it is that you cannot read a single passage of scripture correctly unless and until you've seen how that passage relates to Jesus Christ and his unique work of redeeming a people to the glory of God. You have not understood the Old Testament teaching on the Levitical priesthood until you've understood how it relates to Jesus. You've not understood the wisdom of the Proverbs until you've understood how the Proverbs relate to Jesus. You haven't understood Amos' cry for justice to roll on like a river until you've understood how that justice relates to Jesus. Because Jesus is the revelation of God. So, quick, quick example here. How, how do you read and then preach 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath? Don't want you to answer out loud, but I just want you to think about it. Maybe, how ha, how's it being taught in your children's Sunday school classes? If, if you recently taught through 1 Samuel, how, how did you teach this? Is it a story of courage? Is it an example of faith? What does it have to do with Christians that one of maybe Aesop's fables couldn't teach us just as well? In other words, what does 1 Samuel 17 have to do with Jesus? I suggest you haven't understood it until you can answer that question. It's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well. Right? Every imperative of the New Testament is ultimately grounded in the indicatives of the gospel. So all the thou shalts are grounded in the what he did. So you haven't understood Peter's instructions that wives submit to husbands until you've understood how that instruction relates to Jesus. You haven't understood James' teaching on favoritism until you've understood how that teaching relates to Jesus. You haven't even understood Jesus' own teaching about the widow's might until you understand how it relates to Jesus. So I'll say it one last time. You have not understood a single passage of Scripture fully and correctly until you've understood how that passage relates to Jesus. Biblical theology is Christ-centered. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. And they're going to roll a video for you. I think. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me. 
because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology, it's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out in the storm so we can be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true life, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about you. It's about Jesus. Now, I don't want you to take Tim Keller's word for it. I don't want you to take my word for it. So I want to give you four reasons from Scripture why you should read and teach the Bible this way. Why you should read and teach through the lens of biblical theology, putting the whole story together. First, that's what Jesus did. That is what Jesus did. The classic example is found in Luke chapter 24. As Jesus walks along the Emmaus Road with two of his disciples, you know the story. They've left Jerusalem after the crucifixion. They are devastated at Christ's death. They are confused about reports of his resurrection. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He's walking along. They don't recognize him. And eventually, he says to them, Luke chapter 24, verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow apart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Two things to take away from this. First, Jesus declared that his redemptive work on the cross and through the resurrection was a necessary fulfillment of God's prophetic plan to redeem a people for himself through the Messiah. That's the force of verse 26 there. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. He says it was, it was necessary. Not, not because there was no other way, but because this is the way God had planned it and prophetically revealed it. And therefore, it must be fulfilled. It's the language Jesus always used during his earthly ministry to point to his suffering as the fulfillment of prior scriptural revelation. Just to give you a few examples, Matthew chapter 26, verse 54. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Luke chapter 17, verses 25 and 26. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Luke chapter 22, verse 37. 
It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now, in, in that last verse, Luke 22, 37, Jesus is actually quoting a direct prophecy that's being fulfilled. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, that first example I gave you from Matthew chapter 26, it's just a non-specific reference to Scripture. But the one that's really interesting is that middle example I gave you. Luke chapter 17, verses 25 and 26. Jesus tied the prophetic necessity of his suffering to the scriptural narrative of the days of Noah. A narrative that has no explicit messianic content. That's interesting. That leads to the second thing that you need to take away from what Jesus is doing here. Jesus says that all of scripture points to himself. All of it. Luke says that basically, he took the disciples on a quick tour of the Old Testament. He began with Moses, with the Pentateuch, the law, and then all the prophets, which in both to, to Luke and Jesus would have meant both the, the, the former prophets, what we call the histories, and the, the latter prophets, the major and the minor prophets. And, and then Luke sums it up with this phrase, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, it's quite possible that, that in using the word scriptures, literally the writings, what Luke is deliberately pointing to is the third major division of the Old Testament Bible. The law, the prophets, and the, the writings, the psalms, and the wisdom literature. This is crucial. When Jesus taught the Old Testament, he said that all of it was about him. Not just the messianic prophecies, not just the explicit promises. All of it. This is what Jesus did when he taught the scriptures. But it's not just what he did with the scripture. Second thing, second reason you should believe me. It's what Jesus taught about the scriptures. It's what he taught about the very nature of the scriptures. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's a verse we know well. Most of the time, I think when we, when we think about this verse, we're going to this verse to use them to, to point out the fact that Jesus kept the law. Jesus lived a perfect life. And, and that's true, and that is certainly part of what Jesus is saying in this verse. Unlike unfaithful Israel, unlike unfaithful Adam, Jesus is going to be the true Adam. Jesus is going to be the true Israel and keep God's law. But he is saying way more than that. He says he's not just going to keep it, he's going to fulfill the law, all of it. In other words, he's going to show what the law was all about. He's going to show its proper end, where it was pointing, where it was going all along, where it is fulfilled. And, and what's more, he says that not even the smallest detail of the Old Testament can pass away until it finds its fulfillment in him. Now that's big. Jesus is saying that the very nature of Scripture is such that its, its function, its meaning, and its permanence are all tied to him and his work. 
scriptures don't make Jesus. Jesus makes the scriptures. They find their meaning and their purpose in him. And Jesus makes almost the exact same point in John chapter 5. He's, he's rebuking the Pharisees in John chapter 5 for not believing in him. And in that rebuke, you'll be familiar with this, he calls two witnesses. The, the first witness that he calls are the signs that he's doing, which of course will culminate in the greatest sign, the cross and the resurrection. But the second witness that Jesus calls in John chapter 5 is the Father's testimony about him. Now, now where have they heard the Father's testimony about Jesus? Well, John chapter 5, verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have mine. So according to Jesus, the Father's testimony about the Son is the Old Testament. Not just a, a few select verses of it, but, but, but all of it. And its, it's nature, it's, its purpose, its goal, according to Jesus, is to point to Jesus. But it's crucial to note here the relationship that Jesus draws between himself and the Old Testament. Jesus does not say, if you had understood the Old Testament correctly, you would have believed in me. That's what you think he says. When you read it closely, you realize that's not what he says. That's what the casual reading leads you to. That's actually not what he says. What he says is, because you don't believe in me, you've never heard his voice. Because you don't believe in me, you've never understood a word you've ever read in the Bible. If you believed in the Messiah, Jesus says to them, rather than your own self-righteousness, then you would have understood God's word. If you believed in the Messiah rather than your own self-righteousness, then you would have believed the word of God as it came from John the Baptist. If you believed the Messiah rather than your own self-righteousness, then you would have believed the revelation of God's truth even as it came out in my signs and miracles. But the fact is, Jesus says, you've never believed in the Messiah. You don't believe in me, the one God sent. And so you have never, note the tense, you have never heard God's voice. You've never understood a single word he said. Bottom line, according to Jesus, the very nature of the scripture is that they point to him. They're about him. And we can't understand them without him. It's not just Jesus. It's also the apostles. This is the third reason that we should read the Bible this way. This is what the apostles did. And they apparently learned it from Jesus. Back in Luke 24, verse 44, so a little bit later, he says to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There's that threefold division. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. 
So not only does Jesus repeat that the entire Old Testament is about him and, and must be fulfilled in him, but he then goes on and opens the apostles' minds so that they can rightly understand the scriptures. And, and notice that he tells them, I'm going to make you authoritative witnesses to this. You are going to be witnesses to my fulfillment of the Old Testament. That, that's really what you're witnessing to. And you're going to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't the apostles' idea to find Jesus in the Old Testament. It was Jesus' idea. And he gave them the Holy Spirit to equip them in this authoritative work. And then Jesus goes on. I mean, there, there's more, right? Just as Jesus tied our understanding of the Old Testament to our belief in him in John chapter 5, in John chapter 14, and in John chapter 15, he ties our understanding of both the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament to our belief in him. So John chapter 14, verse 24, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. John chapter 15, verse 20, if they obey my teaching, because they love me, they will obey yours also. So not only is Jesus the key to the Old Testament, he's the key to the Gospels and the rest of the Apostles' writings in the New Testament. This is what the Apostles were taught by Jesus, and this is precisely what they did. Through the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, they read the Old Testament as if it was a book about Jesus. Now, there's so many examples I could point to here. I want to give you just two. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Joseph has been warned in a dream by God to flee Israel, to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. And in verse 14, we're given this really amazing verse. Verse 14 of Matthew chapter 2. So he, that is Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is an extraordinary verse at so many levels. Matthew there is quoting the prophet Hosea. But he's quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now when you flip back in your Bibles and you go look at Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, you realize it's not a prophecy. It's just a statement about what God had done in the past to rescue Israel. And, and Hosea is using that statement actually to set up a rebuke of Israel for her later unfaithfulness. So Matthew is not quoting a direct prophecy. He's not even quoting the original narrative of Exodus. He's quoting Hosea's characterization of God's earlier historical action to save Israel, and he's saying that all of it, the original act in Exodus that Hosea was referring to, and Hosea's characterization of it, all of it is fulfilled in this act of Joseph taking Jesus down to Egypt. That both the Exodus and Hosea 11.1 1 are both about Jesus, this begins to boggle the mind. Until we begin to realize what Matthew has done. Matthew has adopted a comprehensive, prophetic understanding of the Old Testament. Not just the obvious prophecies, but the entire Old Testament, including the Old Testament's commentary on the Old Testament. Is about Jesus. Second example, the entire book of Hebrews. <laughs> right? According to the author of Hebrews, chapter 1, 
The law points to Jesus. Chapter 2, angels point to Jesus. Chapter 3, Moses points to Jesus. Chapter 4, the promised land points to Jesus. The Sabbath points to Jesus. Chapter 5, the high priest points to Jesus. Chapter 7, Melchizedek points to Jesus. In fact, the entire priesthood points to Jesus. Chapter 8, the tabernacle points to Jesus. Chapter 9, the sacrifices point to Jesus. And by the time you're done with chapter 11, you realize the entire history of Israel points to Jesus. In fact, it begins to get hard to find anything in the Old Testament, according to the book of Hebrews, that doesn't point to Jesus. You get the point. When the apostles read the Old Testament, they thought they were reading a book about Jesus. And they wrote about it that way. When they wrote the New Testament, they wrote it as the inerrant witness to Jesus' fulfillment of not just an Old Testament verse here or there, but as the fulfillment of the whole thing. In all of its detail, in all of its broad strokes, it was all about Jesus all along. But friends, here's the kicker. It is one thing for Jesus to read the Bible this way and teach the Bible this way. It's one thing for the apostles to read and teach the Bible this way. After all, they're Jesus and the apostles. We would expect nothing less. The kicker is that this is what the apostles say we should do. And this is the fourth reason we should do this. Because we're, we're instructed by Scripture itself to read the Bible this way. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. A verse you know well. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is the classic text that we all go to in order to affirm the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. But there's so much more in these verses. Paul tells Timothy to continue in what he's learned from the Scriptures, the purpose of which was to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you realize Paul here is talking not about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. There is no New Testament yet. So not only is the Old Testament able to make us wise for salvation. According to Paul, that's its purpose. And we are to read it to that end. To read it merely as the history of Israel. To read it merely for moral lessons. To read it merely as a timeline that gets us to Jesus is to misread it. Because it is to mistake its purpose. It'd be like, you know, picking up the newspaper and treating it like a cookbook. I might know what all the words mean. But if I, if I mistook its purpose, I have utterly misread it. Paul makes almost the exact same point in Galatians 3.24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Why does he say that? Because he's rebuking the Galatians for misreading the law. For thinking that the ultimate point of the law was obedience to the law. And he's basically saying to them, guys, guys, you should have realized this. All along, the point of the law was to lead you to Christ. That's just Galatian Christians they say in that too. 
people like us. We, ordinary Christians, not apostles, ordinary Christians who have the same spirit that the apostles had, should read and teach and preach the Old Testament the same way the apostles did, as a book that's all about Jesus, telling a single story about God's plan to redeem a people for himself through the judgment of his son, and then accomplishing all of that through Jesus Christ. One book, one author, one plot, one purpose to reveal God in all of his glory through Jesus Christ. What difference does this make for us? So we're going to end tonight. I'm going to give you six reasons for why this makes a difference just in our ministry, practically. Well, first, it allows us to preach the whole Bible as Christian scripture. The whole Bible. So I don't have to be in the Gospels. In fact, I don't have to be at the end of the Gospels on Easter Sunday. And I don't have to be at the beginning of one of the Gospels on Christmas Sunday in order to preach a sermon about the incarnation or the crucifixion or the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the redemption of the world. I don't have to do that. Because I can do that from any passage of Scripture. Because it's all about Jesus. Now, some passages are easier than others. I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that. But I can just preach the Bible. And I can preach through the whole Bible. And if I don't happen to be in quite the right place when my sermon series is, is landing, you know, around Christmas time or around Easter time, you know, it's okay. Because it's all about Christ. I can preach all of Scripture as Christian Scripture, and I can make every sermon a gospel sermon. Second, it makes the gospel clear no matter where I am in the Bible. No matter where I am in the Bible. It, it protects me from moralism. So, David and Goliath, how, how do you preach 1 Samuel 17? Brothers, I would suggest that David and Goliath isn't a sermon about how we need to be brave like David. It's not even a sermon about how we need to have faith like David. It's a story about David's greater son who faced our greatest enemy in single combat and defeated him for us. It's about recognizing that 1 Samuel 17 comes after 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as the king, but he's not recognized. Nobody knows it. But he is the true king. And then, and then he shows up on the battlefield facing the greatest enemy of God's people and the pretender king, the imposter king, who should be out there defeating God's enemy, and he's cowering back in the tent. But the true king proves he's the true king by going out and doing what the true king does and delivers his people through single combat. Who does that sound like? That's not allegory. That's seeing how Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a son that would crush the serpent's head connects up with 1 Samuel 17 and then on to Colossians 2.15 where on the cross Jesus Christ disarmed our enemies. 
seeing how all of that connects up to explain who Jesus is and what he did. Or take Exodus chapter 2, which I was recently preaching on. I'm preaching through Exodus right now. Exodus chapter 2, you know, it's the, the great story of the birth of Moses and then his flight to the, to the Midian wilderness. You know, I'm staring at that passage all week, thinking, how am I going to preach this passage? And, and other than the fact that everybody knows the story so well because of all of our Sunday school classes and everybody knows about baby Moses, you know, in the basket, how am I going to preach this passage? And I start just staring at the passage, and I'm just trying to do exegesis at this point. And I begin to notice this is a passage that is all about answering the question, who is Moses? Because there are, there are a couple of naming events. You know, Moses gets named, and then he names his own son. But actually, when he names his own son, he's thinking about who he is. Um, and, and then in the middle, Moses is, is very derisively given a, a mocking title by his own people. And you begin to realize this whole chapter has been set up to explain who is Moses. And so I begin to look at the different sections and just answer the question. Well, how does each section answer the question, who is Moses? And, and, and as you get through the, the whole narrative of, of him being found by Pharaoh's daughter, you realize the point of that is ultimately Moses is a royal son. He becomes Pharaoh's daughter. He doesn't get a name until she gives it to him. He's a royal son. But then all of a sudden the scene shifts. And this royal son is voluntarily identifying with his enslaved people. But they don't want him. And he is rejected by his own people. And in fact, he had to be rejected by his own people. As the story in that chapter ends with him in the desert in Midian, he had to be rejected by his own people so that he could become the redeemer of his people. A royal son, voluntarily identifying with his people, suffering their rejection in order to fill God's promise of redemption. Who does that sound like? Or you think about the resurrection. So, so often we, we, we preach the resurrection almost as an afterthought to the gospel. You know, I mean, it, it proves that Jesus is who he said, it, said he is, and that's true. But... But when we think about the resurrection in light of the whole storyline, we begin to realize that, that the resurrection is not just an afterthought to the gospel presentation. As you read the Old Testament, you begin to notice that there's a pattern. God's people are faithful to God's covenant only so long as the covenant mediator lives. So when Moses dies, when Joshua dies, when each of the judges die, when Samuel dies, when David dies, when Solomon dies, again and again and again, the people fall into ever deeper unfaithfulness. Now what that pattern is teaching us is that not only do we need a better covenant, a new covenant, we need a better covenant mediator. We need one who won't die on us, right? And so who ensures my persevering faith? So when I read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. All of a sudden, I understand what that means. My salvation never was and never will be dependent on me, but on the eternal efficacy of Jesus Christ, the mediator whose blood speaks a better word for me now and whoever lives, ever lives to intercede for me. Third difference it makes, 
It means the Bible is no longer just an answer book for us to life's little problems, but it's a new set of glasses. It changes the way we see everything. When I understand what the Bible is all about and so how to preach and teach it, I stop preaching it as a, tip, as a set of tips on how to live a better and happier life. All of a sudden, the Bible is not merely useful when it has something explicit to say about a problem I have. But now the story of Scripture becomes a whole new way of seeing my own life and the world around me. So when my congregation is faced with suffering, I don't take them to the Scriptures to figure out how they can get out of that suffering, how to avoid it. No, I take them to the Scriptures and I show them the storyline of Scripture and I help them to see that as disciples, we've been called to identify and imitate Christ, a suffering Savior. And so we take up our own cross. We learn to profit from it and walk through it. When faced with marital conflict, I don't take them to the Bible so that they can learn better communication skills and conflict resolution, though they might be able to learn that. No, I, I take them to the Bible so that they can see that according to the Bible, marriage is all about Jesus and the church. It's all about the gospel. It actually turns out your marriage isn't about you, finally. And so if it's not about you, finally, and your own personal fulfillment, maybe that changes the way we, we begin to deal with our marriage problems and our marriage conflicts. Four, it keeps us from making wrong applications of true truths. It keeps us from making wrong applications of true truths. So, for example, when I understand that we relate to God through Christ in the new covenant, not the old, then I don't flatly quote Old Testament prophecies of material prosperity and say, if you'll trust Jesus, he'll make you rich. <laughs> a lot of people do. And a lot of your people wonder, well, how come that's not true anymore? If it was true for them back then, why is it not true for me now? Instead, I, I teach my people that the true promises in, in those Old Testament passages, and they are true promises, pointed to Christ. Jesus is the true riches. That was just shadow. That wasn't the real thing. Now, the real thing is Jesus. He is the true riches that those material promises of wealth were simply pointing to. Fifth, it reminds me that I'm fitting people for heaven. I'm fitting people for heaven, not for better lives here on earth. When I understand the story, then I understand that there's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. And so often, I as a preacher and my congregation, man, I want to treat this life as if this life were the goal, as if this life right now were the end of the story. But it's not. It's the middle of the story. And if you know anything about narrative arcs, man, the middle is, you, you don't want to spend any more time in the middle than you have to, right? The middle is like the worst part of the story. The middle is where all the problems are happening. The, the, the middle is the part of the story that makes you long for the end of the story. I want to teach my people to think about their lives in that way. I want to use the story of Scripture to constantly redirect our aspirations and our hopes away from our best life now, which is a lie straight from the pit of hell, to our best life then. And so we're going to live now, and we're going to pursue justice, and we're going to pursue love, and we're going to pursue righteousness, but we're going to live now 
in light of them. We're going to begin to recognize that, that actually to be fit for heaven will oftentimes mean suffering on earth. Because there are really only two days in the Bible, today and that day. Today and that day. And I want to teach my people to live today in light of that day. Finally, six. Six reasons this matters. It reminds me that the church is to be a display of God's glory and not mine. A display of God's glory and not mine. If I'm fundamentally a marketer, a manager, and the gospel is fundamentally a product that I'm selling, and the church is the organization I'm building. In other words, if I've taken my understanding of the Christian life and ministry from the storyline of the world, then my glory and the glory of my local church will be measured by the tools of the marketer, by the metrics of the market. But rather than take my model of church from the pragmatic values of the business world and the market, I realize that from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, God has been about building a temple garden where his glory will be displayed, and it's not so much a place, it's a person. Jesus is the temple. And when we are united to him, we become his body. We become the temple of God, which means that my little local church is a local expression of that temple, body, garden, which means that my church is to be a display of God's glory, not mine. A glory that is measured by a different set of tools, a glory that is measured by Christ-likeness and the power of the gospel. Friends, Christ must be our goal every time we open the scriptures. I don't know what kind of week you had last week coming in to this week. I know what my week was like. It was brutal. If I don't have Christ, then I might as well hang it up. Go home. Take up something else. Friends, we must have Christ. Or we have nothing. Which means we must give our people Christ. He must be our goal every time we open the scriptures. And by God's grace, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I trust that he will be. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a gift you have given us in the scriptures. Because in the scriptures, you've given us the vision of Christ. We who were not able to walk with him and talk with him, yet we know him. We see in all of his beauty, all of his majesty, all of his glory, all of his grace through the scriptures. Father, we pray that you give us eyes to see, and we pray that you would give us hearts and boldness to hold him out richness and the fullness of who he is, that our people and that our churches might be a display of your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.